Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. We're going to do some multitasking today. Uh, We have the Euros on the horizon and Caleb and I are going to do a joint sort of casual look at the Euros. Some of our favorites, some of our teams that we think have the biggest upset potential, some big names to watch, some more unheralded names to watch. And also, you know, we're going to throw in some classic corner kick hot takes in there as well even though nathan strauss isn't joining us on this podcast that doesn't mean we are deprived of having uh, hot takes but before we get to that i am joined by a man who did not score the winning penalty for his country a week after winning the champions league it is caleb rhodes hello yes i'm admittedly doing the less glorious tasks of cleaning up my college dorm room in the sweltering heat without air conditioning (laughs) i think neither of us are certainly scoring winning penalties in mile high denver right now but caleb before we get on to the euros let's discuss this absurd game (laughs) between the usa and mexico which took place on sunday i think it took the soccer world by storm i think it's pretty safe to say that and that's because this game quite literally i feel like stefan in snl when i say this but this game quite literally had everything It had managerial red cards, it had penalty drama, it had a backup goalkeeper coming in to save the day, it had uh, ill-advised projectiles, the game had to be stopped at multiple points in the game, it had several pitch invaders, including one on the CBS set where a pitch invader (laughs) ran into frame in the CBS set and jumped off the balcony, never to be heard from again. Caleb, uh, USA comes back from behind twice to win this game, 3-2 in added time, but not without, you know, several moments of uneasiness in this game. But I think you have to say of this was the probably is going to go down as the statement game for this next generation of USA potential players. Yeah, I mean, this was this went from a game where I think all of us, at least in our text group chat, before we watched it, were like, I am, I've never been less motivated to watch a USA-Mexico soccer game. I don't really care about the CONCACAF Nations League, especially because the trophy looks simply unfinished <laughs> and terrible. It's a bad <laughs> trophy. It's, who, trophy should be shiny. Okay, I think there should be a rule. You shouldn't go for like a matte finish on a metal trophy. And I don't know what kind of like asteroid base was going on there. But point being, there was definitely an issue of of motivation on our part in terms of why we should care. Um, And that was only compounded, I think, when we made an error in the first minute and allowed uh, Corona to score. Um, But this had a nice little redemption arc. Giovanni Reyna becoming, I think, the third youngest player to score in a USA-Mexico game for the United States. Um, more late drama with Linez and then McKenney equalizing. And then, of course, Christian Pulisic with what must be said is should be an example of how a penalty should be taken. And then, of course, Ethan Horvath 
coming on as a sub for Zach Steffen and making a save on Andres Guardado to win the game in extra time. I don't know. I just entered the game not really caring, and I left feeling more hopeful than I have in a long time about the U.S. men's national team, especially when I see so many, you know, big young names coming in and really sort of making this team their own. Yeah, I think that's the thing that sticks out to me too in reflecting on this game. Aside from like the utter chaos that was this game that started at 9.30 and wrapped up around 12.40, it was really funny because I was thinking about all the things that you could do in like the amount of time that this game was going on and like the three plus hours. I looked it up and you could genuinely start and finish Robert Zemeckis's Forrest Gump starring Tom Hanks in the time that uh, this game was going on. It was that long. Uh, so I think aside from all of the, the, the absurdity that was happening both on the pitch and off the pitch in this game, I think you look back at the goal scorers and it's Gio Reyna, it's Weston McKinney, and it's Christian Pulisic, probably the three players who we think are going to make up you know, the star power of this team going forward. I think those are the three players with the highest profile probably playing in Europe right now. Uh, obviously playing at three huge clubs, Pulisic just winning the Champions League, Reyna just winning the DFB Pokal, and Weston McKinney uh, winning a trophy at Juventus too, the Copa Italia. So I think all three of these players bringing their winning mentality from Europe, from overseas into this game was extremely important. And I think you saw that with, I don't think any of them had like a particularly amazing game but they all stepped up with clutch moments when it was absolutely necessary to do that. And you're right when I think we leave this game caring about the CONCACAF Nations League because winning feels good. And the U.S. has not done a lot of winning recently, even with all of the potential that they do have. So it was nice to see these players finally get across the line and get a piece of silverware to build on as we head towards World Cup qualifying, which is the huge obviously monumentous task they have ahead of them now. Yeah, World Cup qualifying, I feel a lot better now going into it. And it always is a little strange, you know, being from a country of over 300 million people being concerned that we might not qualify out of CONCACAF. But there are Trinidad's and Tobago's in the world and nothing... Who will not be in the mix for qualifying, though. That's true. But, But my point is, those those figures is there are other islands oh yes obviously there are many other islands that could throw a wrench or a beach sandal antigua and barbuda yeah there's yeah my point is we haven't earned anything yet and this is nice because it shows me that we can um but there are many many tasks ahead but perhaps we can move on from the concacaf nations league to a tournament that I think we're a little more excited for, what we are calling the UEFA Euro 2020s. Of course, this tournament was supposed to be held last year this time, um, but was delayed for obvious pandemic-related reasons. Nick, where shall we begin? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting tournament, Caleb, because a lot has changed in a year. And it's cliche to say that, but it's absolutely true, especially now in like the modern landscape of soccer. Things move very quickly. So there were some contenders that were perhaps more powerful last year and are less powerful this year. There are certain teams, I think, like Italy, 
who have greatly benefited from having a further year to develop their talent. So I think this is a really, it has set the table for a very, very intriguing tournament. I think obviously the, the concern that I have is that a lot of these players are just exhausted. I think there will be a lot of games that will be very, very hyped up and that might disappoint, but we can talk about that as the tournament evolves before our eyes. But let us begin, Caleb, by looking Wait, at... I have a quick question. I have a quick question related to tiredness. Yes, please. Do you think the Euros are going to end up being a better tournament than the World Cup this coming winter? Ooh, that is a great question. I don't know. That is an excellent question because I think they're not going to get a break until that tournament in 2022. And that might be, especially in Qatar, where the conditions are really aggressive. I know they're going to have like the high tech air conditioned stadiums, but still it's Qatar. It's going to be 95 to 105 degrees when every game kicks off. Um, It's going to be mid season, which I think is going to help a lot of these players who are going to be kind of in, Mm. in a rhythm. So I think that is going to help. But I think it is it is a, a tough call to make, just considering what we know now about player exhaustion, like what is coming out about a lot of players being in the quote-unquote red zone when it comes to fitness. So I think you it, it's an interesting point to raise. I think we're going to start to see you know the foreshadowings of 2022 in this tournament, but I think yeah. that is a good question to ask. Okay. Well, did not mean to, to slow your roll there, but I think we we're going to start with who we think some of the favorites are for this tournament. Now, if we take a quick gander at the FIFA men's world rankings, up at the top, we have Belgium as number one. They've been number one for a while now. We've been talking about how they've been in a golden generation for six years now, if not more. In theory, if you were just going off of that, they should be one of the odds-on favorites for this tournament. But I personally am not buying the hype for a few reasons. The first, I think their defense is a little past it and lacks a little bit of quality. They still have issues at wing-back. I don't think Carrasco makes you know who you necessarily want to have as a defensive wing-back. And then also, Kevin De Bruyne might not be available, and I think he is indispensable. So I don't know. What do you think about Belgium? I think Belgium are set up to disappoint a little bit. I am not entirely sold on Roberto Martinez as a manager. I think as Roberto Martinez has stayed in jobs for a prolonged period of time, the sheen has sort of worn off a little bit. And when you say aging defense, I think that is putting it a little politely. Thomas Romalin <laughs> is still in this squad to go to the Euros. Uh, that is a massive red flag for me. Jan Vertonghen is in there as well. And even though these guys are experienced and they have quite a bit of tournament experience as well, I, I am just not entirely sure that perhaps if Russia 2018 was like the swan song for this golden generation of Belgian talent, I think perhaps Euro 2021 or the Euro the Euro 2020s is going to be like the denouement, the epilogue of this team. It's interesting to see how Martinez gets a tune out of some of these players, particularly Eden Hazard, who I think is coming mm-hmm. off a real career low this year. Uh, he obviously made an appearance in one of their preseason friendlies, so it looks like he's set to play a, a big role. I'm just unsure about how you know, some of these Belgian players who are at different phases of their careers 
than they were in 2018. Like Jan Vertonghen no longer pray, plays in the Premier League. He plays for Benfica. Uh, there are certain players like Yannick Carrasco and Romelu Lukaku who I think have had really resurgent years, mm. you know, mm. both winning titles this year. So I think that having that to fall back on a little bit, having those players to fall back on in the squad is, is pretty useful. But I am... Like you, I think I'm I'm a little bit skeptical skeptical about how far Belgium can go in this tournament. Yeah, yeah, I don't think the ascendance of of Lukaku and Carrasco to a lesser extent overcomes the sort of trending down of the defense of the midfield, Sands, De Bruyne, and the fact that Eden Hazard's been poor, Dries Mertens is getting older, and that Benteke and Batshuayi are not necessarily the sort of scary players off the bench that that they once were. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think the golden generation is is starting to dull. Um, and this might be, as you said, a bit of a swan song for what looked like a very promising group of players. Nick, why don't you throw out another potential favorite for us to discuss? Caleb, I think we got to talk about the champions of the world. And the I think easily the odds on betting favorite for this tournament, it is the French national team who have recently recalled Karim Benzema to international duty. However, he did go off injured in their friendly today against Bulgaria, but it looks like he's going to be reasonably okay to go for this tournament. Uh, they have everything going for them right now. These players, when they get called up to France, play at a completely different level than they do when they play for their clubs. You know, you look at the likes of Paul Pogba. I think he really turns it up when he gets a call up to the French national team. Antoine Griezmann, who scored a bicycle kick today in said friendly against Bulgaria, I think always turns it on for the national team. And they still have so much of this core from winning the World Cup. And you look at the players that have kind of been rejuvenated a little bit in this team in their club careers, Thomas Lamar, is one of those players. Presnel Kimpembe has had a greater role at PSG in the past couple of mm. years. I think they they earn the favorites tag by being such a deep team and also being a team with so many accomplished players right now in their careers who step it up when they, they get the call up for France. Yeah, and I think the truly terrifying bit is when you look at the squad, most of the players are between the ages of like 24 to 28. And the ones that are younger are like Kylian Mbappe and Usman Dembele. And the ones that are older are like Angolo Conte and Karim Benzema. And Giroud. And Giroud, who of course came off the, I don't I forget if you mentioned this, but who came off the bench this afternoon against Bulgaria and scored the second. And I, I think Griezmann, who had a better club season than I think people give him credit for, although not his sterling peak, has been on fire for France lately. Had an amazing curler in midweek and had a ridiculous bicycle kick today. It's so hard to bet against this team. And I feel like it'll be hard to bet against this team for the next six years or more, considering the French U21 team easily could be the French national team at this point. I don't know what was in the water in France about 22 years ago, but wow. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think this team has the potential to not only contend at this tournament, but just be perhaps even better 
next year in Qatar. And I think you add on the cherry on top, which is Karim Benzema making a return to the national team after some serious drama internally between him and the, the Football Fédération uh, Francais. I think this the Benzema thing is so interesting to me because it signals to me that Deschamps, who is I think has cultivated such a great culture and brotherhood surrounding this team. This this makes me think that he's he's thinking that I am willing to sort of give some of that away, a few inches of that away, in order to bring a serial winner like Benzema, who is probably in the form of his life for Real Madrid right now, into this team just to make sure that I'm leaving no stone unturned in terms of contending for this title and making this a dynastic run for the French national team. Yeah, normally I try to think root against the like odds on favorites a little bit, but I also just enjoy this team so much and I think they play so well. And so I would not be upset at all if France kind of continued their their glorious march to victory that they've been on in the past few years. Anyways, Caleb, <laughs> let's get on to I think a category which might be a bit more fun to discuss. Let's get up to the uh or let's get on to the teams that we think have the biggest upset potential at this tournament and i think the interesting thing is that there are a a few squads here that i think we could choose from but what is your team that you think you know could surprise a few people i feel like group a has a lot of intriguing teams in it and i think that wales can finish second in that group Ooh, and have another you know, run into the knockout rounds like they had in 2016. That is interesting. Why do you think that? So I'm not super convinced by the Switzerland team, even though I think they have the second most quality in the group. And I think outside of the Italy squad, or maybe in total, Gareth Bale might still be the best player in that group. And he's pretty much just been training at Spurs this whole year to come do the thing with Wales. Um, and so I think he's going to show out in in this tournament. And I think that this group in general is pretty, has a lot of parity to it. I don't think anyone should really think their place in those top two spots is settled by any means. I, I actually think that is a pretty good argument for Wills. I think they have a really, they're kind of in an interesting position because obviously their manager for this tournament was set to be Ryan Giggs. They're clearly been some things in, in away from soccer that are making us like reevaluate our stance on Ryan Giggs, but he's not going to be the manager. It'll be interesting to see how they contend with that. They're a very pragmatic team, but I think they can play in a variety of different ways. I assume most of this tournament will be played on the counterattack for them. And they have a few players that I think could really benefit from playing that style. Like not only Gareth Bale, but obviously you look at Dan James, you look at Nico Williams, you look at Harry Wilson from Liverpool, who could also really benefit from playing that kind of style. I think there is some upset potential here for Wales, and I would love to see them kind of throw it back to 2016 and kind of upset their way through the group and through the knockout stage of this tournament. I think it'd be a feel-good story. I think them, them and Scotland, I think, are the two sort of mm. British stories that I think if they were to get out of the group, that would be they would be sort of the underdogs of the entire tournament. Is Scotland your pick then? Scotland was one of my picks. I'm heavily leading towards Scotland because I think Scotland being in a major tournament on the global stage is always a fun time. 
no matter if you love the Scottish, if you hate the Scottish, if you can't understand the Scottish accent, if you are fluent in Scottishness, they are just a fun crowd to root for. They're a fun team to root for this time around. Uh, Kieran Tierney, Andy Robertson, uh, a lot of really, really interesting players in this squad. I think the one place where they probably struggle is goal scoring. They don't have a real, you know, out and out goal scorer. I think the best thing that they can come up with right now is Che Adams up front alongside mm-hmm. Dykes. I don't know if that's particularly, um, you know, threatening going forward, but defensively, I think they have a really interesting set of players. You know, you look at Kieran Tierney, who can play in midfield for them. Andy Robertson, who's their captain. You know, Scott McTominay, who I think has had probably his best season at Manchester United. Ryan Frazier, obviously, from Newcastle, who I think is a very, very quality player, a good player to have at a tournament like this, an injection of pace coming off the bench. And I think, you know, the jewel in the crown for this midfield is going to be Billy Gilmore. And he is a player (laughs) that... (laughs) He is such a technically gifted player um, that I think could really make a statement in a Scotland team that is built around, you know, hard work and determination and just grinding, grinding out results in this in this tournament. But for me, I think the team that is going to make it the farthest with the sneakiest potential and no one is really talking Mm -hmm. about them right now is Denmark. Denmark. Interesting. Denmark. They're in Group B along with Belgium, Finland and Russia. I think they could very easily finish second in this group or even yeah. beat Belgium to finish first in this group. They are undefeated in six matches coming into this uh, tournament, including an 8-0 win over Moldova in World Cup qualifying. They have scored 14 goals and conceded none in World Cup qualifying. And they have a lot of established names in this team. I think they have one of the best goalkeepers in the tournament in Kasper Schmeichel. Mm-hmm. I think they have a lot of really solid defensive players and Joachim Anderson and Yannick Vestergaard and obviously Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, who has had a great season with Spurs. Kajer, who is a very, very solid player for AC Milan. And then you look at them yeah. going forward and they have a lot of quality on the ball. You, know, you think about Christian Eriksen. Oh yeah, you think about Skov Olsen who has really come along in the Bundesliga, a great set-piece taker. They have the potential to, I think, make a lot of things happen. And a great striker who can score goals in Kasper Dolberg, too. A good spine to this team, and a good spine gets you very far in a tournament like this. I think what's going for Denmark is the fact that they don't concede more, don't concede goals more than they score lots of them. I mean, I'm just looking at the team. They only have one player in this squad who is in double digits in goals for Denmark. And that's Christian Eriksen, who, you know, has had a bit of a tough time at Inter, but was more important this year, but has not been especially prolific in Italy. Although obviously players change how they play a lot for the national team. But I do look at the forward line and I am a little bit concerned. I mean, Martin Braithwaite has 50 caps and only nine goals. Skov Olsen has only played, you know, six games ever for the Danish national team. Kasper Dolberg is turning out not to be, you know, quite as good as we expected. I think they're going to rely very, very heavily on having players like Yannick Vestergaard and Simon Kier, you know, keep it tight and Kasper Schmeichel. But I think in terms of how far they can progress, they're probably limited by the fact that there just aren't really that many goals in the squad. Although it is, it is a good team. And interestingly, I feel like Denmark's the only nordic country really right now that's a bit lacking for some like young world-class striker which is a little unfortunate for them but i think that is 
a good pick. Um, and I think there's a lot of quality throughout the, the groups for some rather unheralded teams. But perhaps we can switch to some more individual discussion and talk about some of the big name players we are watching out for. And when you, before the podcast, asked me to think about who that might be for me, one name immediately kind of floated into my mind. And that name is Thomas Muller. This is a great, this is a really intriguing one. Worth having a discussion about for sure. Yeah. So Thomas Muller sort of famously discarded from the national team by Yogi Lowe, what, in 20, after the 2018? Yeah, he did World the Cup? massive clean out after 2018 when they went out in the group stage. No more Boateng, no more Hummels, no more Muller. Etc. Etc. Except now he's realizing that he needs to <laughs> probably reintegrate some of those guys. Yeah, because meanwhile, while Muller's been out of the national team, he's been tearing it up in the Bundesliga with goals and assists galore. I think he provides some experience to what is a bit of a young front line, especially with someone like Timo Werner having a kind of like uncertain prowess in front of goal these days. I think he could be the key for this team that is languishing in the FIFA rankings down in 12th, but certainly has far more quality. In fact, Germany is below Denmark in the FIFA rankings. So I don't know. I think Thomas Muller could be key. And I think we should give a little bit of credit to Love for bringing him back into the fold, along with Mats Hummels who had an amazing assist against Latvia the other day um, for Serge Gnabry. So watch this space. Yeah, uh, but my sort of big name player to watch, if you will, maybe a bit on the you know lower scale of this you know big name recognition category, but it is Italian striker Ciro Immobile for a few reasons. One, I think this man is not getting the credit that I think he deserves for being one of the most potent goal scorers in Europe. Uh, obviously in 2020, he was, he, I think he won the golden shoe in Europe. He scored 36 goals in 36 games in all competitions this season. He's had a little bit of a, a decline. He only scored 20 goals. Only I say this, Oh, he only scored 20 goals in Syria um, this season, but he's going to have to be at his best in this Italy team to really capitalize on the movement and the skill and the technical quality of a lot of these young players around him. This is going to be the first tournament for him to really be the main focal point for a country that has, you know, immense footballing expectation and pressure uh, on every Italian player's shoulders. And it'll be interesting to see how he copes with that. And it'll be interesting to see how he, I think how he expresses his, relationships with the likes of Barella, with the likes of Chiesa, with the likes of a lot of these younger Italian players who are going to be the backbone of this team. He's going to need to be at his best to, you know, benefit from his connections with those guys and put the ball in the back of the net for this Italy team. Especially considering that Mancini decided to leave a player like Moise Keane out of the squad entirely. And Chiro Mobile, other than Andrea Bellotti, is really the only striker in this squad and really the only striker 
that has shown con the consistent ability to be a 20 to 30 goal or more a year player. So I think I think that's a good shout. And I think he's 31. So this is probably his last. It'll be his last Euros probably where he can really, really make an impact. And I think, as you've mentioned to me several times, this Italy team does seem like it's ready to spring um, into action. Yeah, I think it's a big, big tournament for a player like Chiro Mobile, where I think of this tournament, he, probably, he was probably pissed that he did not get to play this tournament last year coming off the back of his incredible season with Lazio. But I think he's continued his scoring streak enough to where I think he's still in a great position to capitalize, especially being at the forefront of this really youthful Italy team and this really mm -hmm. gifted Italy team as well that I think is going to surprise a lot of people under Mancini. But it's, you know... Have we waited too long to see the best of Chiro Mobile at an international tournament? And only he can prove us wrong. Should we move on to our next category? Yes, of course. So we've talked about, you know, maybe some bigger name players. But let us discuss some of the more unheralded players that we are going to be keeping our eyes on in this tournament. Players that, you know, none of these players are really unheralded or secrets or anything like that. Because they're all going to be playing uh, in the globally covered uh, tournament on several broadcast networks around the world. But I think, Caleb, if you're looking at all of these teams, what are you know maybe one or two players that you think it'd be worthwhile to point out so people can keep an eye on them in this tournament? Sure. So keeping the theme of German players, the player I want to highlight for this segment is Robin Gosens the left wing back you always do you always you love previewing a left back when it comes to international <laughs> tournaments there's not been one of these podcasts that we have done before, <laughs> before an international tournament where you haven't been like the player that i'm looking forward to watching is a left back in 2018 it was Tagliafico. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who it was in years prior, but it's, for whatever reason, like without fail, I can all we can always count on you to bring up a left back for the people to watch. You are a fullback. Uh, I, I, as someone who used to play fullback poorly, <laughs> I have a certain appreciation for the position. Also, I just feel like it's it's a position in soccer that there are perennially you know, not enough quality players and national teams, especially even really good ones are sometimes exposed for not having good natural right and left backs. Belgium is a great example here. Germany to a lesser extent um, who've tried, you know, a whole host of people. But Robin Gosens is another one of these players who Atalanta have unearthed as being incredibly quality. I mean, he was playing in the Eredivisie um, for Heracles Almelo, not even one of the top, you know, big teams in the Eredivisie when Atalanta bought him for the 27-2018 season. And the man not only is a good defender, but especially in a sort of five-at-the-back formation, scores goals. He had nine goals last season, or two seasons ago in Serie A, 11 this season. He offers an incredible threat against Latvia, admittedly not great opposition, but a game that Germany won 7-1. He dovetailed amazingly, great movement with Kai Havertz, making runs both inside and outside of the front three. This man is quality. This man is this man is better than Castagna, another former Atalanta player who moved to Leicester. I don't know. I think he's really good, and he's a player. He's 26. He's only going to make his eighth cap 
Um, early only has seven caps coming to this tournament, and he's he's a player to watch. Um, yeah, so sorry if I'm a bit of a broken record when it comes to to left backs. No, I, I love it. <laughs> we we shouldn't we shouldn't you know pass up good opportunities to scout scout some players. It adds some flavor to this uh, <laughs> this podcast. Absolutely, it gives it you know a little bit of a a connoisseur feel. You know, we're picking some of the finest players of every position. I mean, these are supposed to be unheralded players. I think a 26-year-old who used to play in the Eredivisie and is just sort of broken into the national team setup at age 25 fits the bill, no matter what position they play. So I'm giving you all this crap. I've also picked a left back. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I've picked, I've, I have two lower key players that I want to highlight going into this tournament. Uh, I think a team that, we're probably going to get on to later when we discuss, you know, biggest bombs heading into this tournament. Uh, but the Netherlands, I think they could have a pretty difficult tournament, you know, given all of the mm. not so phenomenal headlines coming out of their camp in the mm-hmm. past couple of weeks. I think Owen Windau, the left wing back, applying his trade in the Eredivisie for Azed Alkmaar, is someone to look out for in this tournament. Not only is he exclusively pacey, but he also has a great eye for a pass. It looks at times as though he's playing as like a creative left midfielder, left winger. And I think for uh, two midfielders like Diong and Wijnaldum, who are incredibly adept at going from box to box, having a player, you know, sprinting alongside them who's incredibly creative like Windahl as well could only mean good things for the Dutch national team that is going to need every single bit that they can get from this team in order to do good things in this tournament. But the player that I really want to highlight is a team that I am so happy is at this tournament. It is the conquerors of Germany, the 2-1 conquerors of Germany. It is North Macedonia, ranked number 62 in the FIFA rankings heading into this tournament. Uh, They are in the same group as the Netherlands, so we perhaps will see these two players play against each other. But the player that I am choosing to highlight that you should keep your eye on is center attacking midfielder for Napoli, Elgif Elmas. He is only mm. 21 years old, incredibly creative player, incredibly technical player. A lot of the attacking weight for this team is going to be on his shoulders. He's going to be shuttling the ball up the field. He's going to be comboing off of Leeds United's Elian Alioski on, at, at left wing back. And he's also going to be probably solely responsible to getting the ball up to the legend that is Goran <laughs> Pandev playing up top for <laughs> North Macedonia. A player in Goran Pandev who is older than the actual nation he is playing for in this tournament. So I think North Macedonia are a very, very cool story heading into this tournament. And Eljip Elmas is an extremely tricky and tidy player that you should be keeping your eyes on in the group stage because I think that is probably the last time you're going to see him in this tournament. You don't think North Macedonia have the the youth system to to keep this going for a few more years? <laughs> I mean, I am skeptical, but you know we shall see. I I wish hope for the best for them. Okay, but now we're gonna do the inverse of the biggest upset category. We're gonna do the biggest bomb threat, or just general. Should we call it biggest bomb threat? <laughs> That's. <laughs> The biggest bomb threat at the Euros. <laughs> Evacuate the premises now um, before okay. we get into this category. Okay, so now we're going to do 
to talk about the teams that we think are most likely to not live up to expectations. And that might also entail a general hot take. I think you you already hinted at what my hot take is going to be, which maybe suggests it's a little colder than, but I think the Netherlands are going to miss out on qualification mm. from this group. I think De Boer has proven to be one of the worst managers in world football. And I wish that was hyperbolic. <laughs> I wish that was like kind of a joke, but I think it actually might be true. Like he might have one of the worst soccer minds in a generation. That coupled with the fact that they're missing players like Donny Van de Beek, who might not even have even added that much um, because he's had quite an off season at Manchester United. They're also missing, obviously, Virgil van Dijk. I don't know. I I just don't think this team is really going to get anywhere because it doesn't seem like they have a plan. And I think they have a bit of a leadership vacuum as well. And unlike Germany, I think Netherlands 16th place ranking in the FIFA world rankings is somewhat deserved. I'm not super hot on the Netherlands. And then I'm not sure which of North Macedonia or Ukraine, I think is going to pip them to that second place. But I think Austria probably have this group on lock. I think those are all good points. I'm in total agreement with you when it comes to the Netherlands. I think it's going to be a not a phenomenal tournament for them. It's going to be one to forget. And De Boer will get the sack and he'll probably fall up to a better job knowing the trajectory of Frank De Boer's career. You know, he's probably going to end up at like Real Madrid after getting sacked from the Netherlands. Yeah, I it's so weird. He's like, have you watched uh have you watched Silicon Valley? Yeah. He's like Nelson Baghetti. Oh yeah, dude, absolutely. That is right? that is perfect. The character who like literally can't do anything right as a programmer, but each season keeps finding himself in like a more impressive job. Like he sells some app for like millions of dollars and eventually Spoiler alert, by the end of the show, ends up as the president of Stanford University. Um, maybe DeBoer will take on a prestigious role at some Dutch university. Yeah, maybe he'll be like Amst- president of Amst- sports management at Amsterdam University or something like that. But no, he's, he's, he's bad. He's bad. He's bad, and he also like has no... It doesn't seem like he has a great connection with his players on this team either. I think his... I think down to the fact that you're hearing about like he wants to take Virgil van Dyke to the tournament not to play, but just to be like a glue guy in the locker room. Uh, he also uh, misnamed one of his players in a press yes. conference. He yes. was talking about Quincy Promise and he talked about another player playing in the Eredivisie, I think with the name Quincy. Something like that. Who wasn't who wasn't in the squad? Yeah. Like he had this whole long answer to this reporter. And it was about like a completely irrelevant player to the question at hand. No, no. People were like, does he know who he's coaching? No, I know. That's and a huge concern. he also has some weird thing where he like refused to let players like Gene Wijnaldum, who is about to make a transfer to PSG, um, and some other Dutch players like Memphis Depay do physicals to do transfers before the Euros. And he's like, no, you can't. So he just has some weird team policies. He doesn't know his players. He's actually bad tactically, which, you know, in general does not make for a good run up to a major tournament. No. Yeah. 
And like knowing us, the Netherlands are going to come out and absolutely destroy in their group. And they're going to. Oh, right. Obviously. Yeah. Like, of course. Um, but whatever. I wouldn't. I, you know, things I like the Netherlands. I like I've been to Amsterdam a few times. I enjoy it. The food could, could probably use some work, but I like the Netherlands. And so it wouldn't disappoint me to see them succeed. But I think there aren't great indicators that they will. No, I think I, I'm in total agreement there. My getting on to my hot take, and this is this might offend some of my family members, and you know perhaps some British people living on this podcast, perhaps the composer of our corner kick theme song, William Patel, who is a proud fan of the Three Lions. England are not going to make it past the round of sixteen in this tournament. Damn, damn. Because look at who they have to play coming out of this if they finish i think top of their group they're going to need to play the second place team in the group of death so one of france germany portugal or perhaps you know (laughs) barring a small small miracle maybe hungary um but if they if that does happen or even if they finish second in their group and they play the first place team in the group of death england historically in big tournaments do not do well against better opposition than them, like more technical opposition, more, you know, elite caliber opponents. And you've seen like there's already some, I don't want to call it turmoil, but I think definitely some concern starting to bubble up, you know, within the English media and within people who cover the England national team that this squad is not, as good as I think we thought it was going to be coming into this tournament. I still think they have elite attacking options, but you know, what is the fitness of someone like a Jack Grealish look like? What is the fitness of someone like Marcus Rashford look like? Is Raheem Sterling where he needs to be in order to have an impact in a tournament like this? Um, Jordan Henderson's fitness is obviously a massive question. Do they have enough depth in the midfield positions leaving someone like James Ward Prowse at home who is a dead ball specialist and you need set piece takers to score goals in international soccer these days about over 60% of international soccer goals are scored via set piece Harry Maguire's fitness Harry Maguire just started running again recently he doesn't look like he's going to be you know fit to really contribute in the early stage of this tournament taking someone like Ben White, who is a talented player, but does not have a lot of experience at the international level. I think there are a lot of questions about this England team, particularly at the back and in midfield. And are they going to be fit enough? Are they, you know, I think the only player who I think really has a aggressive mentality when it comes to facing adversity in this team is Jordan Henderson and Jack Grealish. I think those are the two like hard men, if you want to call them in this team the rest of them haven't you know won much aside from phil foden kyle walker and they are not a super experienced bunch either and i think if they come up against a france or a germany even for all of the problems that the german national team has right now i think england are still gonna still might find themselves on the losing end of a game like that do you think southgate misused his final tune-up friendly against Romania by playing players like Ward Prowse, who's not going to be involved by playing Calvert-Lewin up front. He essentially played a lot of the players he's not bringing with him to the tournament, Ben Godfrey, Jesse Lingard, Jesse Lingard. And even then they, they really, 
only scraped by this team because of a Rashford penalty. See, here's the thing. This England team, at least according to transfer marked values, has the most valuable squad entering this tournament. It's worth like $1.2 billion compared to France, who are second with the team's worth about a billion. Now, obviously, a little bit of that is just because English players tend to be more valuable just because they play in England. And so there's a lot of that going on. But there aren't really a lot of good excuses to make for a team this talented, especially offensively. And I think the question I have is whether Southgate has figured out a system that really gets the best out of this team. And I think you're right that if he doesn't hit on something, because I don't know if it's the three at the back. I don't know if they're doing a 4-2-3-1. I don't know if they're doing a 4-3-3. But I think that unless they... Unless he gets that totally right, they probably will go out to, you're right, whoever finishes second in that group of death, which is likely to be Germany or Portugal. England are always such an enigma in these tournaments. It's a little bit baffling sometimes. I think you're right, and then a lot of it is going to come down to the coaching and the tactics that Southgate is going to have. This is going to be, this is, you know, unlike the World Cup 2018, and a lot of England fans aren't going to like me saying this, where they had a fairly easy run to the semifinals. And there didn't need to be like a lot of tactical work being done by Southgate in that 3-4-2-1 formation. In order to progress far in this group, there is going to need to be a lot of tactical innovating from Gareth Southgate in order to get the best out of this team that is not 100% fit coming into this tournament. Especially when you look at the likes of Jordan Henderson and Harry Maguire, two of their biggest leaders in this team aside from Harry Kane probably not going to play a huge part in the early going here. And I think you're right. I think playing players like Lingard, playing players like Ward-Prowse, I think that just adds an extra level of confusion to both like on the outside looking in and probably on the inside as well. Like if you're a player playing in the England national team who's already been confirmed to go to the Euros if you're part of that 26-man squad, you're think you're probably thinking yeah. like am I still like is my place in jeopardy? Like, is that still, is there still a discussion being had about me? Now we know the squad going, there's no more friendlies left to play. But I think there's way more questions than answers with this England team right now. And hey, there's only one way we find out the answers. And that starts this weekend when games begin. That is true. That is wild. Yeah, Turkey versus Italy. I guess one more question before we go. Because Italy obviously start this tournament against Turkey playing in Rome. And I think home advantage is going to be a really interesting thing to watch in this tournament. I think you talk about the England national team. They play most of their games at Wembley stadium in this tournament. There's not going to be a lot of travel. It's going to be, have to be done by a lot of these teams. What, what is your take on home home field advantage? You know, like in, in an international tournament like this, do you, is it something that you want to see continue? Is it something that you would welcome? Or is this just like, do you think this is going to overcomplicate things a little bit? I kind of like it. I mean, I, I think it's it's not that often that you get to see England play in like a really, really important match in London. And so I kind of like having the opportunity of really ramping up that, you know, fan pressure and stuff, especially after it's been lacking for a year. But I also understand the counter argument for the teams that have to travel to London to play England that that's deeply unfair um, in a competitive international tournament. For now, I, I am for it. Unless 
we see some data after this that like the home team when it was like true home advantage are just overwhelmingly dominating in a way we wouldn't expect simply based off of the differential rankings between the two teams. But I think it provides a nice experience and it's nice to have the tournament taking place all over Europe. I agree. I have one last question for you before we leave. As a Spain fan, obviously a, Spain fan. a lot of hopes riding coming into this tournament. Spain are in great form. Lucho yep. Enrique, great manager. How yep. worried are you about Alvaro Barata starting up top for this team? Oh, God. I am concerned, but Alvaro Morata has been generally decent for the Spain national. I know he had a bit of a, a blunder. Yes, and when we say a bit of a blunder, he missed a header from point-blank range in Spain's last friendly, leading to yeah. chants in Spanish, obviously, from the home fans singing, Alvaro Morata, you're so bad. <laughs> which, is, which is not what you want to hear as a soccer player in any sport. You don't want to hear fans chanting, you're bad. Singing, um, you're bad, to, to a tune. To a tune. That's even worse. They, it, they put enough it, effort to put this thing in <laughs> rhythm. That's how bad um, Barata was. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal, but I think if he's really, really bad, I could just see Gerard Moreno playing through the middle and having like Ferran Torres and Ryotza Ball on the wings. So I don't think we're totally reliant. Also, I think we have more quality through the middle in the Spain team this year than we've seen from Spain in a while. So I'm not super concerned. I'm more concerned about the fact that I feel like we're just going to misuse Marcos Llorente a little bit if we start him as like a true right back. It, he is technically the most valuable player on the Spanish national team, which I think is wild, but also speaks to just how good he's been for Atletico Madrid. Um, and the other thing I'm concerned about with this team is the fact that uh, Busquets contracted COVID and had to leave the squad, and it's unclear what his status is going to be. Luis Enrique kind of called up Bryce Mendez, who was holidaying in Mykonos um, at oh, the boy. time and had to return to Madrid. But the thing is, technically... Uh, they can't add players to the squad right now, so he's kind of on standby. Also, he's not a defensive midfielder. He's an attacking midfielder. So I'm not totally sure who's going to anchor the Spain team in Busquets' absence, probably Rodri. But in general, I'm very pleased with the Spain squad, and I think Morata will probably be fine. Um, but it, it, things are starting to fall apart slightly at the seams for now. So we just got to be careful not to pull that thread um, a little too hard. Well, I think certainly a lot of intrigue heading into this Friday. Nathan and I will be back this weekend with a more... Nathan and I will be back this weekend with a deeper dive into everything about the group stages. We're going to be taking a look at everything there is to look at when it comes to all of these groups all of the machinations, all of the tactics, all of the players, everything you could possibly want from Euro 2020s. This has been a really fun podcast. I've enjoyed it. It's been kind of fast and loose, given our unfiltered takes. And uh, be sure to be back with us this weekend as well and beyond. So with that being said, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Reds. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>